coming to you from the red, white, and blue. You're now tuned into the number one crypto podcast on the planet. This is Crypto Conquest, discussing everything cryptocurrency and the evolution of financial systems to the blockchain. Now, here's your host, John Wingate. What's up, everybody? I am so excited about today's show. We've got an amazing co-host, Dr. Schillig from King's College in London, uh, and I can't wait to bring him on here in a second. Uh, we're going to be discussing some amazing topics on the Crypto Contest today. Uh, everything from crypto being too big to fail, smart contracts being legally enforceable, and then his thoughts on Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, not being considered security, but other tokens like XRP being considered securities. Uh, so without further ado, make sure you're following us. Make sure you email any questions to admin at CryptoConquest. Send these episodes to your friends. Send these episodes, uh, broadcast them out on your Twitters, um, and support our program by going to CryptoConquest.org. Without further ado, Dr. Schilling. Sir, how are you this afternoon? I'm good. I'm good. Um, can you hear me okay? Yeah, we've got you loud and clear. Welcome Excellent. to the Conquest. Excellent. I'm uh, very happy and honored uh, to be here. Um, no, the honor's uh, mine. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, yeah, it's my pleasure. I, I loved our, uh, you know, we've been trying to connect here for the past few weeks. I know you're you're out and about on sabbatical. We were finally able to connect the other day. And uh, I was I was very much, uh, I don't think impressed is the is the correct word to be using here, but in awe of uh, kind of your mind and um, your passion on bridging this gap of your financial understandings of the existing world and then you know bringing it into this 3.0 version we call crypto it's too much honor too much honor <laughs> <laughs> well you know i i think uh, really quickly why don't you just uh, i i gave a little bit of an intro to you uh you know we know you're a law professor at king's college in london um, your focus right now is uh, not maybe 100% on crypto, but you're certainly uh, making crypto a major part of your curriculum or at least a, a um, you know, de devoting some serious thought and time to crypto. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about kind of what you're doing over there and, and what your focus is, why you decided to jump into crypto? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I've been a, a professor of law uh, with a focus on um, financial law at King's College London uh, for several years now. Um, I started out in my career with a focus on yeah, run-of-the-mill commercial law, corporate law, um, and also corporate insolvency or bankruptcy uh, law, and um, and then moved into to banking. Uh, bank insolvency, so too big to fail, in particular after the global financial crisis of uh, 2008, 2009. Um, so I, I was interested in these issues. And uh, of course, um, around that time, uh, also uh, Satoshi Nakamoto published his famous white paper on, on, man. on, on Bitcoin. So in, in, in a way, these concerns, uh, this uh, on the one hand, this loss of trust in the traditional financial system and uh, on the other hand, the rise of, uh, of Bitcoin and then in the wake of Bitcoin success, other um, altcoins and, 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 and platforms. Um, for me, they really go together. And so um, then I started to, to uh, get interested in, in cryptocurrencies, uh, crypto assets more broadly, and uh, because of the impact. Um, very good, very good. Sorry, that was me. Just I think the crowd really, the crowd really uh, enjoyed the fact Excellent. that you're <laughs> the um, fact that you're a crypto fan. We love that over here. Yeah. So and and uh, I, I, of course, uh, with a legal background, I'm I'm very much focused. I, I'm I'm not a, a computer scientist. I'm not a coder, um, but I, I try to get my head around things. And and um, I'm interested in um, the legal implications of crypto assets, of cryptocurrencies, and um, the, the the potential uh, regula regulatory uh, implications as well. Yeah, why don't you tell me this real quick? Where were you when you first heard about 
uh, Bitcoin? Like, where, what were you doing? Not not the exact moment you heard about, you know, Bitcoin, but what what was your kind of you know station and what were you doing at that time? And what were your thoughts when you first, uh, you know, I think you you gave some homage to Mr. Nakamoto. What what was it you were doing, and what did you think when you initially heard about this tech? I, I think. I was probably in my office in, in uh, London, in uh, Somerset House, which is kind of nice and central. Um, I was probably in my office and uh, working on my book on uh, bank resolution and bank insolvency. What is the name uh, of that book? Um, it's uh, Resolution and Insolvency of, of Banks and Other Financial Institutions with uh, Oxford University Press. Um, so I'm, cool. I'm, I'm supposed to work on a second edition at the moment, um, but, you know, that takes time. So I, I, I suppose I was in my office working on this book. And um, I, I have to admit that um, when I first heard of Bitcoin, I was not one of the, the first ones to invest um, huge amounts um, in in. Uh, in, in Bitcoin, um, it, it took me a bit longer to uh, realize the potential and and, um, and and to see how interesting it is, um, uh, also from a legal perspective. Yeah. Uh, so you, you kind of um, was it brought to you by? Did you hear about it just through your own searching, or was it brought to you by one of your students, or how did you you know how did you hear about it? To be honest, I, I don't really remember. I, I, I guess it's uh, it, it was probably. Um, yeah, the general financial uh, press, um, Financial Times, perhaps, or, or Guardian, or, or things like that. I mean, um, uh, yeah, I think that that is probably um, the most likely um, uh, sphere where, where I heard about it. So, you know, back in those days, we had to... Um, you know, we, we, we had to survive this chasm with Bitcoin. And that brings me to our first topic here is, and we, we discussed this a little bit before the, the show, Dr. And, you know, it's the concept of my concept, not your concept. I'll just preface that. The concept that I'm thinking of, of crypto, you know, let, let me rephrase what I put up here, being past the point of regulatory you know government regulatory interference being able to completely shut it down i really wanted to one of the one of the things that i keep getting asked is you know can that happen my my personal thought i'll save that till uh you know we get into this discussion but i wanted to bring that to you and you know i call it too big to fail i think the way you look at it and the way we discussed it before was regulatory uh adherence or, or rather regulatory interference, uh, you know, putting so much restriction on it that, that it could be good, it could be bad, but what are your thoughts on Bitcoin being past the point of, or not Bitcoin, but just blockchain in, in general, being past the point of being able to get turned off like a switch by governments? Um, yeah, we, we uh, spoke about this earlier and, and we have these different concepts. So for me, too big to fail is a very technical a concept that has to do with um, the, the the potential rescue or the inevitable rescue of uh, financial institutions by by governments, so that the bailout uh, conversation. Um, but for you, the question is, is a different one. Um, can governments shut down blockchain platforms completely? And uh, of course, we are talking here about um, permissionless open uh, platforms that uh, have a global reach um, then, that operate in, in many uh, jurisdictions on, on a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, basis. Um, I suppose um, the answer for me is that it is very difficult for governments, for a single government, um, to shut down a particular uh, blockchain platform completely. Um, so, but but governments can still do um, significant damage. So we've seen this a little bit with uh, China's uh, crackdown on uh, Bitcoin miners. Um, 
so of course, then um, the, the, the big uh, miners, they could move and, and could uh, establish themselves elsewhere in more sort of friendly uh, jurisdictions. I was more worried about, not to cut you off, but more worried about China nationalizing the miners and taking them over and, you know, doing things like in that perspective. But, but that in, in, in a way, that would be the same thing, because, you know, if, if China controls Bitcoin, then um, for us, what is the appeal of uh, still being invested in Bitcoin? Um, you know that, that to me that that would so radically uh, change the, the the nature uh, of Bitcoin that uh, as an idea or or, or as a concept it, it wouldn't wouldn't make sense anymore. Um, so uh, going back to the initial question, I, I think um, governments can do significant damage um, to to a platform uh, if acting uh, by themselves. I don't think they would be able to shut it down completely. Um, they, if it's if it's um, uh, a government with significant uh, firepower, so to speak, financial firepower, also in terms of enforcement, like China or the US, um, then um, that may devalue a, a token to such an extent that uh, it's no longer um, of any interest to, to anyone. And uh, when it becomes really sort of um, dangerous, I, I guess, is when uh, governments start to act in concert and uh, to group together and, and um, to really then um, push push a platform um, to the fringes, so um, so that they can only operate in, in certain niche um, economies with with uh, you know limited um, financial wherewithal. Um, so I, I think that is still possible. Um, but but we really, I think, in my view, we have to look at particular platforms, um, perhaps not the uh, the crypto universe overall. Sure. But, um, particular platforms, uh, particular applications. I think uh, single governments can do significant damage, and um, and if they if governments were to come together and act in concert, um, they could. Um, this damage could be uh, imposed in an even more forceful way. Do you think that, you know, one of the things that I keep coming back to is that if, if governments, you know, let's go back to the, uh, to the dark web uh, age where really I, I felt like at that point, if governments took more of a um, firm stance or, or really a more of a regulatory or, or even shutting down certain aspects of the dark web early on, it wouldn't have been able to get, you know, Bitcoin and and um, you know some of these other blockchain technologies wouldn't have been able to gra get such a foothold because that's really where that I believe they got their foothold. At this point, do you? And I know you're coming from the f f traditional financial thought process here, but crypto being too big to fail, um, you know, in some aspects, in some regards, there are, uh, you know, people have have bought things on the blockchain that are now asset. Uh, driven and you know the risk of if something like Ethereum fails. Let's not really talk too much about uh, uh, Bitcoin per se, but if something like Ethereum fails, where you have all these DeFi projects on it relying on it, do governments to some degree need to step in and provide stability and backing, much like uh, you know the FDIC or some of these? Um, you know, insurability platforms that the government puts in place. Do you think that those are something that governments will step into? Or do you really feel them just standing on the sideline and saying, look, we're going to regulate it and, and we're going to let it, you know, rise and fall as it sees fit, as long as it stays in the regulatory framework that we outline? Yeah, so this is essentially the question of whether, um, say, Ethereum or, or any other platform or the DeFi ecosystem overall, whether they are um, systemically uh, significant, systemically important, Yes. Uh, whether they uh, pose a danger for financial stability. Exactly. So, and, um, so th this concept of financial stability or, or systemic risk um, is very ill-defined, um, so it's very hard to measure. Uh, of course, one um, first approximation is uh, the sheer size of the market. And uh, if, you, if you look at that, then um, I, I suppose the overall uh, crypto market capitalization is something around uh, $2 trillion. Um, if you compare that um, to uh, the financial system overall, the traditional financial system overall worldwide, um, then that would be 
uh, 22.5 uh, trillion dollars. So it's sig still significantly smaller um, than overall um, uh, the, finan the, the financial sector overall. Of course, that is not a, a very good um, way of, of looking at, uh, at these things. Uh, one would have to look again at specific platforms, at specific applications and how their sort of failure would, would interact with the wider um, crypto ecosystem or, or the real economy uh, in particular. But it, it is an indication that it's still um, comparatively small uh, in terms of market capitalization. So one indication that it that perhaps currently um, uh, crypto is not significantly uh, systemically significant. The other, so, sorry, oh, yeah, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, go ahead. And the, the other consideration, the other point that I would uh, just like to make is that um, where does um, systemic risk come from um, in traditional finance? It comes from... Um, uh, short-term, very short-term, runnable uh, instruments that financial institutions carry on the liability side of their balance sheet. So deposits, money market instruments, uh, things like that. And um, in the within the crypt, crypto ecosystem, we don't have that. So Bitcoin or ETH, they are not um, they are not uh, instruments uh, or, or liabilities uh, as such. Um, uh, issued uh, by a certain by a certain um, uh, entity, so they are not runnable uh, in that sense. Um, uh, perhaps we have it a little bit to some extent um, in DeFi um, with with uh, uh, collateralized loans and and that sort of thing, and and also uh, derivatives and, and and hedges. So we have it a little bit there, but uh, but still, I think that this particular uh, problem um, that is associated with financial risk, with, with, uh, with financial stability and systemic risk um, in the traditional financial system. Um, we don't have that yet um, in uh, crypto and also the link between crypto and the real economy. So jobs and, and uh, you know, pensions and uh, access to, um, to, to current accounts and things like that, that is not at the same uh, level um, that we see in the traditional banking system just yet. So um, in, in my view personally, I don't think that at the moment um, the, the crypto uh, ecosystem poses um, financial stability risks. Um, this may change in the future when, um, when we see more um, mainstream or widespread uh, adoption, um, but, but at the moment I don't think um, we have that. So, so here's an interesting thing that comes to, or thought that comes to mind. You said 22 trillion is the current, you know, let's call it volume, market cap volume, whatever we want to say of the current financial or the traditional financial system. Bitcoin is at 2 trillion. At what point would you, would you look to the side and say, hmm, this is starting to be, you know, statistically significant from the fact that, you know, these, these financial, uh, you know, balances are starting to shift, if you will, to the side of crypto what what is that number for you yeah so so this is exactly the problem um with um concepts like financial stability and systemic risk in general that it is impossible uh, to put a number on it um yeah, it's an easy way out for me as opposed <laughs> that is an easy way so let's so, let's go to something that i'm not going to let you out of easily which is the the smart contracts and them being legally enforceable i think this is a good segue because uh you know we've we've hit on this last topic but this is some place where i think that uh, you know your focus probably lies more than just the financial aspect is you know smart contracts are starting to become the uh, underpinnings of the what I would call the legal framework in which crypto can now be used uh, in the in a more traditional financial sense, where you can uh, create immutability around a contract uh, and codify it um, on a blockchain, which lives forever, as opposed to something maybe where two people put a contract together and they both lose the contract. Now it's a, now it's a hearsay type of dispute. Um, I'm really interested here to get your take on smart contracts. First, their legal enforceability 
and and if you know of any cases, I'd love to kind of get your thoughts or or any any precedents that you've seen set in that regard. Uh, but also not just their legal enforceability, but how do you feel uh, their adoption will increase or will it increase? you know, from you being a lawyer, I mean, you're, you're actually a lawyer. You're not just a professor. You're also a lawyer. What is your take on how this uh, expands for the future? Yeah. So this, this talk of smart contracts, um, when Ethereum was launched and also in the, the, the then uh, ICO uh, boom, that uh, really got the lawyers excited. So um, there was a massive, rush to publications on enforceability of smart contracts and and the like um to me um, i I think i agree with uh, gavin wood um who wrote uh, i think that a smart contract is a misnomer um it it is perhaps a little bit unfortunate um because what he means um by um uh, in 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 his book on uh, understanding ethereum so uh, what, what smart contracts are in Ethereum, and you know that uh, better than I do, are simply, is simply code, um, code that, is, uh, that can be executed uh, uh, in a decentralized fashion, um, that, that can be tracked, and, and the state uh, changes that are uh, resulting from, uh, from running this code can then be stored on the blockchain. So I, I, in, in that sense, um, a smart contract um, is not a contract in a legal sense at all. Um, it, it has often been said that smart contracts are neither smart nor contracts. Um, I, I, well, I re- just repeated it uh, now. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so for me, um, if you talk about um, smart contracts, and when I say smart contract, I mean smart contract in the Ethereum sense as simply code. So if you talk about smart contracts in that sense, then um, as such, without more, they have no legal significance. So the, the question of whether they are enforceable um, is, uh, in, in a way, a nonsensical question. Um, what these smart contracts can do is to facilitate performance of legal contracts proper. So if uh, Alice and Bob agree that Alice uh, transfers uh, a certain amount of tokens uh, to Bob, then this can, subject to certain conditions, um, this can be uh, encoded in a smart contract. And then um, depending on the condition, which of course has to be accessible by the smart contract itself, if that's the case, then um, this uh, transfer of the tokens in accordance with um, the legal obligation can be effectuated automatically. So uh, in that sense, smart contracts are simple um, devices to enhance and automate a performance of contractual obligations. But these contractual obligations, they exist outside the smart contract, so to speak. Um, they, they are a legal overlay that are based on agreement, often acceptance, consideration, whatnot, um, agreed by the parties in, in, in the standard legal uh, fashion. And then uh, this can be enhanced and the performance can be uh, made much smoother, smoother by uh, relying on, on a smart contract. And then the question becomes, um, well, is the underlying contract valid? Um, and and um, if, if, if it isn't valid for, for whatever reason, then the question is not so much whether a smart contract is enforceable, um, but uh, whether the, the, the transfer of value that has occurred on the basis of the smart contract can be reversed. And it can be reversed if you, if you know the person who received the value, then um, you, you, know, you, you can um, issue a court order against them if they are identifiable. Uh, you can enforce it through uh, content proceedings and, and, and whatnot, and uh, you can re- reverse that contract. But um, the legal significance is uh, entirely based on the normal legal contract that exists separately and outside uh, of the smart contract. And you're really just talking about like, um, you know, the existing legal framework of, for example, British common law, that, that really is the, the layer 
that keeps this all together. Nothing about the smart contract Excel itself, except for just the fact that, yes, you can look that, hey, this person was supposed to get X based on some type of specific performance and that happened and we can verify that. And now you have a basis for, like you said, taking something to court and using the existing legal frameworks in place uh, with with the smart contract or you know the code, as you, uh, if you will, as a... Um, uh, you know, a piece, a piece of the legal, uh, is that even possible? Have you seen that type of usage of a smart contract in a legal proceeding yet where somebody has said, Hey, look, I, I was, you know, anticipating X to happen. Y happened. I, I, you know, I performed, uh, per my agreement through the smart contract, that person didn't perform. Have you seen anything like that yet? Legally speaking? Um, I haven't seen it yet. Um, uh, I haven't seen it yet. And, um, uh, well, it's it's also uh, early days, and um, it, it's all early days also because um, the 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 people in the community um, that would rely on on smart contracts um, is not necessarily the community that is very uh, re uh, uh, litigious and uh, would necessarily run to the courts. Um, you know, <laughs> they just kind of take the loss and the, keep going, right? The, the early community, uh, you know, that, that was interested in, in crypto, so it was, uh, you know, cypherpunk and, and, and so on. Um, with in, in terms of uh, the underlying policy, move away from these centralized uh, organizations. Um, so I, I wanted to make another point about smart contracts, and um, it, this is where it gets a little bit more tricky because um, so you have the code, the smart contract as code on the one hand. Um, that uh, that facilitates performance, and you have the underlying legal uh, agreement. And now there can be various interactions between the two. So you could, for instance, in your legal agreement, refer to the code as specifying the rights and obligations. Or you could have um, a deviation between what you agreed in your legal contract and what uh, then essentially was um, uh, coded um, in your smart contract. So you can have all these these problems, um, but again, um, they then have to be solved uh, on the basis of standard uh, contractual interpretation. So what did the parties want? Did they want the code uh, to prevail? Uh, did they want the the, the legal um, the, the the standard legal uh, text to prevail? Uh, or what did they want? And then you use the, the traditional um, sort of mechanisms um, to ascertain. Um, the, the the intentions of the parties. So let me paint my utopian picture for you here, okay? And you and you tell me where I'm just a a loony that just believes in crypto so much and and the, the future of these things and uh you know just whatever whatever you feel like doesn't fit in the future, I would love for you to to get your feedback. So I can see a future in where smart contracts or let's just say the code that powers these uh. uh binding obligations between people are sophisticated to the point to where not only do you have a set of code that is, um, uh, you, you know, pr providing the, um, uh, obligation for somebody to specifically perform, but at the same time, you can utilize things like NFTs that can create a another form of immutability that are actually a PDF, a contractual PDF that you're digitally signing now. And that is more of a, you know, it's not just a set of code. It's actually a, a, uh, based on how you perform over on one set of code, uh, we create a, uh, PDF, you know, some AI in the background is creating a, uh, legally binding physical contract, a PDF that you would normally e-sign. Uh, but instead of it just being held on some server that got digitally signed by, you know, somebody's, uh, DocuSign or, or what, what that may be, it's now completely on the blockchain. It's immutable. You still have all of the traditional type of legal contracts and, and, um, you know, legally binding instruments that you, that one would need to create a full package, right? Just like you would in any type of, let's say employment agreement or uh, a non-disclosure, or even if we take it into the realm of, mortgages and and assets and securitization uh where you have a a you know a number of documents hundreds of pages that are generated uh and and then you know 
uh, stored on some server or in some file cabinet somewhere else. I could see the entire ecosystem, uh, the traditional ecosystem of the the paperwork itself uh, jumping on chain and and in in some form being code on a smart contract in another form being uh a file referenced by a uh, an nft that's immutable and then this whole ecosystem being put together uh do you see do you see any holes in that and do you see a future uh, my utopian future something that could be uh, uh you know a reality for us all in the the near the near term and why by near term i mean you know three to five years um I think we have to um, distinguish between two things here. Um, so the storage of um, contracted documents uh, on chain, either as PDF or in the form of code, um, I see no problem with. So that can happen, that might happen. Um, so that, in, in my mind, um, that does not create any significant uh, problems. Um, where I see problems, not, not problems, but um, sort of- Challenges? Challenges is um, with the, the uh, automatic enforcement or, or performance uh, of contractual obligations through smart contracts. And the challenges are um, legal obligations that are open textured. So if you if the legal obligation is that Alice has to transfer five tokens to Bob, and that's it, there's no problem with that. There might be problems with the underlying contract and capacity and whatnot, but uh, with the obligation such, there's no problem. Um, where, where we will see challenges and where perhaps um, smart contracts might not work uh, are uh, obligations that are that are open textured, that depend on reasonableness, that depend on uh, some sort of good faith uh, assessment. The human, there's, uh, so the human uh, aspect, right? There's always the human, a human, human aspect. aspect that uh, is relevant in 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 some um, in, in some relationships, in some um, uh, obligations, and uh, this uh, cannot be uh, coded away. And and it, and again. You guys, you know this better than I do, but it seems to me that at least for now, it's not possible to operationalize these open textured obligations uh, in code alone. And um, no, I I, so. I completely agree with you, and I think that you know there there's always the interpretive nature of law, right? And that's why uh, two different attorneys can walk into the courtroom. Uh, at two different times on two different subjects, uh, especially if there's no precedent set, uh, you know, prior precedent set, you know, two different attorneys could walk into a courtroom and have a, a completely different outcome just based on their ability to articulate the interpretation, <laughs> right? The human factor that that exists. And I, I agree with you 100% that if I'm understanding you correctly, that those things um, we shouldn't you know, we shouldn't try to make all of that AI because I think that um, there are aspects of humanity that AI should not be deciding. You know, a a a bad a bad uh, um, you know equal sign should not be deciding our fate uh, in 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 the future of humanity. So is that is that am I understanding what you're saying correctly? Um, I I guess that that is a, a correct uh, summary. Um, uh, I, I just would like to add perhaps the uh, caveat that, you know, there might be areas where AI is better than uh, a human adjudicator and there are other areas where it's um, simply unacceptable or, or where this human touch, so to speak, um, uh, is necessary. And I, I think the challenge for the future um, in terms of uh, legal development will be to figure out um, which area is, is which. And, and I think the reason why blockchain has the ability to take on these challenges, and again, I think that you're, you're absolutely right in that there will be a testing, a, a sandbox, if you will, for these types of concepts to be fleshed out. And some will make it through the sieve of, you know, uh, uh, our, you know, just us saying, yeah, this works or it doesn't work and others won't. And the thing that 
separates or allows us to do this is the, um, you know, the transparency that the blockchain provides. So, you know, in the past or in the current, let's call it the current versus the future blockchain in the current, if I, if somebody does create a software project and it's a website, for example, and let's say it's a, it's an AI dispute resolution uh, project. And I go in there and I'm disputing something with somebody and it makes a decision on my behalf. My ability to trust that is diminished by lack of visibility into the both underlying code base as well as the final decision and the the future life of that final decision versus if there's an AI built on the blockchain that I have a complete visibility into the code base as well as the the uh, prior uh, verdicts rendered and future verdicts rendered, I have this confidence in knowing, at least from my perspective, being somebody who can read that code and look at the blockchain, that this thing is being fair and the code appears to be working as designed and I can, you know, maybe not remove all of my emotion, but I could, you know, set aside my emotion for a second in the, the, the time that I'm uh, able to say, okay, this is something that to me makes sense. Do you see that kind of being a specifically traditional systems and the lack of visibility and blockchains and the you know, complete visibility being a uh, transformational type of aspect of this ability for us to do this now in the future? Um, I, I would agree with that. I mean, the, the transparency of blockchain is a great advantage and also the, um, the precision of code um, as, as compared to traditional legal language um, uh, can remove some uh, uncertainty. Um, but, but sometimes uh, uncertainty is also desired by the parties um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, simply uh, you know looking at your example you look at the blockchain you see um, the smart contract code so you know this is fair um, you know it might be fair right now it might not be fair um, a year or two uh, further down the line so and and so uh, precision and uh, immutability in that sense uh, have advantages and disadvantages and again, it is like with the um, the human and non-human adjudicator. Um, it, it will be the, the great challenge uh, will be uh, to figure out um, in which areas of uh, economic interaction, of human interaction, um, can we rely on, say, smart contracts, and um, uh, which areas um, uh, have to rely on on uh, desired uncertainty. Um, uh, openness for future development uh, and so on. So figuring out where, where the balance lies between the two, I think that will be um, the great challenge for the future. And and this is really a great segue into our next topic here because it, it speaks very um, directly to the human uh, side of um, decision-making. And what I'm speaking to is Bitcoin and Ethereum, for example, have been looked at by people, you know, up and down and are not considered a security, whereas tokens like XRP, which in my mind are behaving, you know, maybe with the exception of a, of a few um, uh, what I would consider minor uh, differences, exactly like Bitcoin and Ethereum. And so really, you know, we're talking about the the human uh, the human side of what makes sense to, um, you know, codify versus we've got to leave that in the hands of, uh, of humans. You have this same thing here where now there's the challenge of why are Bitcoin and Ethereum being looked at as securities and XRP isn't. What are your thoughts on that one? You know, as a lawyer, I have to have, um, I have to reference the, the, the underlying legal material and, um, if you look uh, at uh, U.S. securities law, then we have um, Section 2A of the Securities Act of 1933. Um, and uh, under that act, uh, for example, an investment contract is a security. Um, now, what is an investment contract? And uh, in order uh, to, to flesh that out, um, we have an old uh, decision of the U.S. Supreme Court of 1946, um, SEC and Howey, 
And um, the Supreme Court in, in, in that case has spelled out um, four elements that an arrangement uh, has to meet in order to be considered an investment contract and therefore security. So these four elements are investment of money in a common enterprise with reasonable expectation of profits derived from the entrepreneurial or managerial efforts of others. So if you have these four elements, then you have a security and then this triggers the whole um, the whole shebang of um, uh, securities regulation. European Union has a slightly different uh, definition, but uh, sort of along uh, similar lines. Um, so um, in terms of um, Bitcoin and Ethereum, um, Let's look at let's look at Ethereum okay, yeah, versus yeah, okay. Bitcoin yeah. because Bitcoin is you know I think there's more arguments to be made for Bitcoin that it, it maybe doesn't follow along these lines uh, but Ethereum however uh, has a team they market they develop they release product if they if there's a bug you know literally there was a bug the other day that got the the whole community panicked and if the Ethereum coders didn't release a statement saying, hey, don't worry, we've thought of this, we're, we're, we've already fixed it, here's what we're doing. Does Ethereum fall apart? Look, I mean, the, the problem is the, the, uh, the, the open textured nature of legal language. You know, um, Bitcoin and Ethereum... I lost you a little bit, Dr. Oh, Schilling. Oh, sorry. There you um, go, there you go. All right, you're back. Uh, sorry about that. Um, the, the, the problem is uh, what we discussed earlier, it's the open textured nature, the vagueness of legal language. Um, so investment of money, um, yes, both Bitcoin and Ethereum, you know, you, you usually, uh, most people use fiat currency in order to, uh, to, to acquire um, tokens. Um, in a common enterprise, um, you know, clearly Ethereum and, and uh, the Bitcoin community, that's a common enterprise with reasonable expectation of profits. Um, most people um, buy Bitcoin or ETH uh, in order to benefit from um, from an appreciation of of uh, the price of these of these cryptocurrencies. And the the, the problem and, and uh, the key, I think, also for the understanding of the SEC is this fourth element derived from the entrepreneurial or managerial efforts of others. And um, uh, I, I actually looked this morning at um, the sort of announcements and, and, and speeches of uh, uh, former uh, SEC um, uh, chairmen, and um, their thinking seems to be that um, when a platform reaches a certain level of decentralization, then it's no longer possible to say that... Um, uh, uh, the, the profits are derived from the entrepreneurial or managerial efforts of others because these others, they can no longer be uh, pinned down. Um, with XRP, um, you know, you, you have uh, Ripple laboratories, uh, you know, sort of as, as the um, as a central entity. Um, w w on the other hand, Bitcoin, as you say, um, you, you don't have that. You, you know, you still have... Uh, but you have Ethereum Foundation. Yeah, you have the Ethereum, they market. They do I, I, everything. I agree with you that um, it's not clear cut, and um, uh, on the basis of, of that sort of preliminary analysis uh, of SEC personnel, really, it seems that um, uh, sort of an, a, a token can be a security at some point. Then it can lose. Um, its nature as a security further on, but but no one is is, is to say that it might not regain um, uh, the, the the character of, uh, as a security um, in the future. Um, so uh, if you base it on on the level of um, decentralization, then um, as a token moves from uh, fairly central to fairly decentralized, it may no longer be a security, but then. If, if there's a change in the code, in the protocol that requires some uh, degree of enhanced uh, centralization, then this token may uh, become a security again. Um, so again, uh, Ethereum is a very difficult um, uh, example. And 
also this, this concept of uh, degree of centralization or decentralization um, <laughs> it, it's a little bit like the the financial stability you know it, it's yeah you you can't put a number on it and uh, and and this is uh, one of the great weaknesses but also perhaps one of the great strengths of law that um it, it, it will depend on how the case is argued uh, before the court and um what the court at that particular moment in time um, feels like like doing. Um, so, so this is really all that, that that anyone can can say about this. I mean, we have these sort of parameters, this open textured uh, legal language that sort of um, constrains it a little bit, um, but then the details have to uh, be fleshed out. Um, by the courts, and um, and and we will have to wait and see what what um, the outcome of of um, uh, of these cases will be in the future. One question on this: If XRP just happens to win here, okay, do you think the precedent set uh, provides enough framework or enough flexibility to allow crypto? to flourish and to get, you know, survive that chasm of we're centralized. Okay. We're decentralized because we we've been able to do everything that we need. Kind of a, you know, do you think there's a, a precedent set that allows a safe Harbor period is I guess what I'm, what I'm asking. I think it would be a safe Harbor for payment tokens, perhaps. Uh, I, I don't think it would be um, a safe harbor for other types of tokens, say security tokens proper um, that try to mimic, you know, the, the cash flows and, and control rights um, that we see with with uh, equities or or, um, or, or or debt securities, um, and and also for utility tokens, um, one would really have to look at um, what the court is actually saying. Um, in, in, in that judgment. Um, and, and even then, you, you know, um, we have the same problem with the, the open textured uh, nature of, of, of legal language, um, the vagueness of, of legal language. Um, you know, we, we can uh, extrapolate arguments, but then um, how a future case would be decided on that basis, um, again, would be up to the, to the uh, court who then, um, who then sits on the case. Do, do you see that and I guess this is just a general legal concept that when you have regulatory, and we talked about this the other day, when you have regulation, uh, you're in a much better place, at least from being able to navigate that regulation than just to, you know, being in a gray area for the rest of your life thinking, are they going to come for me? Are they going to come for the guy next door? Um, you know, how important is having a ruling, especially in a place like the United States, that's such a strong financial hub and that really sets a, uh, you know, sets a stage for the world on which we can base future outcomes. How important is that regulatory, um, you know, finality, getting something in place? Um, I, I guess, um, to my mind, there are, again, uh, two answers to that. One, practical and one philosophical. Uh, let's start with the practical one. Practically, um, if, you, uh, if you become a regulated entity and if you comply with um, the laws and regulations that are in place, then um, this gives you an enormously strong position vis-a-vis -vis regulators, vis-a-vis -vis the government, and it also enhances your appeal for um, mainstream uh, customers, mainstream clients. So practically, it makes total sense, and um, and and yeah, it 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 simply in massively enhances uh, the strength of your of your position. Also for you, you know for for your your um, employees, you know they are suddenly in a much better uh, position. They they have a much greater certainty um, what is going to happen with, with 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 their jobs and so on. So lots of benefits that come uh, from that. So that's practical. Philosophical, uh, on the other hand, um, and and this is uh, one of the, the the issues that I'm interested in at the moment um, is the the question of whether uh, we can actually have an 
uh, alternative uh, financial system um, that is more transparent, um, that gives greater access to, to, to a greater number of people that not only benefits the, the 0.1%, but a much broader segment of society. But it's possible to have um, an alternative financial system that is not government-sponsored and um, that, is, that is also not backed uh, by, by the government. Um, and, uh, and I want to believe, uh, I haven't really thought it through yet, I want to believe that this is possible. And then this raises the question whether um, uh, when we then start to regulate this alternative financial system, um, whether we bring it again um, into the fold of government oversight, of uh, underwriting by the government, and um, and and uh, bring it much closer to what, what we have, uh, the traditional financial system um, that, that really um, can be a device for, for rent-seeking of, of uh, strong financial intermediaries. Um, so, but again, perhaps the easy answer is from a practical perspective, it makes total sense to um, um, to try to become a, a regulated entity and and to conduct business from this sort of safe harbor of um, of uh, compliance with the with the existing regulation. That makes perfect sense. I mean, I think that you know we have to balance those two concepts right there in order to create something that's not only um you know beneficial to the to the community that's currently involved but to bringing people um you know because i think that by by banks getting into and and you know traditional financial institutions getting into blockchain providing more visibility not necessarily for for all the people who just want to jump in to make a ton of money i don't think that's the future of blockchain while it is now that's not the future of blockchain but you know really balancing those two concepts right there right the theory and the the practice um we have to really start focusing and that's why i'm so excited i hope that you come on again uh and we can do these conversations more and more i'm really looking forward to um being a part of your class that you're teaching over there at king's college uh watching that and learning as much as i can from you um and i'm i'm really glad to have somebody like you in your mind focusing on how we you know educate more than anything, because that's the goal at the end of the day is to educate as many people on current and future possibilities uh, of what these types of transformational technologies can bring uh, and, and can be used for in the future. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, it has been a great pleasure uh, to be part of this and um, uh, really looking forward to uh, continuing uh, the conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Schillig. I really, it, pleasure was all mine. Uh, I know that our community, uh, several people from our community were really waiting for this to happen. So I'm so happy it happened. I can't wait to talk to you again. Uh, all the love and all power to the people out there watching this right now. Thanks for joining the Crypto Conquest today. Dr. Schillig, again, my pleasure having you on and I can't wait to bring you back on again and, and continuing these conversations. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Thanks. Have a great, great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.